Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Remember when you used to make a record and, and somebody would buy it and you'd make actual money out of all that work that you did? <laughs> well, those days are well and truly gone. And uh, I'm definitely from that time. So I, I am now of the opinion that I can't be fucking asked to make another record to give it away for free. <laughs> Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Welcome to uh, Curious Creatures podcast. Um, we have two. We've got a crowded house tonight. Not the crowded house, but a crowd, <sighs> a house, a crowd in the house. I should start again, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we've got two special guests tonight. It's uh, unusual to have two, and we're very well, very pleased to welcome um, Maya Allmate uh, from the Wonder Stuff, um, and more besides, Miles Hunt. Hello, and. Person who I haven't met before, but we all already have a lot in common. Mark, GT, correct? Yes, Mark Gemini-Thwaite, to the uninitiated. Oh, good. I know Mark very very well, because we're neighbours. I'm a surprisingly good mood. It, I say, um, Miles and Mark, it's like this podcast, we've been doing it for, what, nearly two years now, right through, starting with lockdown. Yeah. And it's the only time I get the feeling of get ready to do something, you know, like kind of, okay. No matter how you feel, <laughs> like, it, for me, it's just gone nine o'clock. But so it's kind of gig time anyway. Yeah. So, wh whatever you're doing, you've got to get ready. You've got to get into, like, your gig head on, you know, and it's amazing. It's been always the right. same. It's like old habits die hard. That's where I found. How, how have you been coping with, uh, with the lockdown and everything? It was, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, this is Milo speaking. Yeah, I was very lucky because I was planning to do something completely different with my 2020 because Mark and I toured the Wonder Stuff at the end of 2019. Um, we'd also spent the previous 18 months before that tour writing, demoing, and then finally recording the last Wonder Stuff album called Better Being Lucky. And I just felt after the tour, I think my tank might be empty and I should go and do something else for a while. So I was very much planning to get a HGV class one driving license and become a trucker. 
Um, and then the pandemic wow. hit. Yeah, I had all the money saved up for the lessons. I knew the guy to talk to, and uh, I really wanted to do it. I thought the uh, idea of me and my yeah. little dog being on the road in a in a great big uh, big truck was very romantic. Anyway, so along came the pandemic and my chance to uh, go <laughs> off to for lessons. I mean, I could have forced it, but I didn't. So. Um, I got Mark and I were obviously already in contact, and then there was a few other friends, a couple in England, a couple more in the US, just started firing off ideas of tunes to each other. And I don't know how it, how it worked out for you guys, but um, I just became, even though I was locked away in my little house in South Shropshire in England, I just became more sociable. You know, it was Zoom calls every other night with friends all over the world. How's it affecting <laughs> you? And it was a very sociable time for me, even though I never left the house. And I got loads of music done. Well, thank goodness that, you know, because right. otherwise you'd have, you'd have been like on like CB radio to other truckers or truckers in the making. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke you in the bandit. How's your uphill climbing going, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted to be a bus driver. Lol, we share many stories of like... We're always up the front with a bus driver. I didn't expect to uh, start the conversation talking about um, you two being wanting to be bus drivers. What what I wanted to get out of the way, or or to definitely mention while I'm talking to Budgie and Lol is, um, okay. I don't know if you know this. When before I became singer guitarist in the Wonder Stuff, I was a drummer in all the other bands that I'd been in. I never knew that. Oh, didn't you? We we have a saying here: all dr all drummers are friends, right? So we right. you know we we go by that motto. You know, we've everybody everybody just serious actually. Everybody that works on uh, on Curious Creatures is a drummer. Okay, <laughs> so there you go. it's true. In, in, fact, in fact, if you come and say that you play some other instrument, we go, well, you play drums too, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Otherwise, you, know, you don't get a job unless you play drums. Yeah. But. I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, I don't know that you ever actually sat behind a kit, but you're, Mark's a superb drum programmer. I'm a drum programmer, yeah. yeah. You're, the, you're, the, you're the person we were all in fear of. <laughs> I've just realised something. I'm, 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 I'm the only person in this group of four people besides the two of the other two. Of the two. I've just realised I've played with both Lol and Budgie. Technically, yeah. Did you know that? Think about it. Uh, Budgie, you may not remember, but I did Jules Holland with, with Tricky, and you were playing with the Creatures. Yes. In '98, um, and you know uh, uh, Jules Holland, yeah. he gets us all to to jam together. So technically, I've technically played with you, so to speak, in, in a big multi-band jam. And I did a gig with Lowell five years ago where he was drumming, yeah. which, which I imagine is a rarity, right, Lowell? You don't, you don't get yes. on the drum kit very often. So I've technically no. played with both of you, which is pretty weird. I just realised it. Yeah. Wow. Great. Yeah. Small world. Well, I wanted to say about um, me being, when, when I played the drums, my three favourite drummers when I was a teenager... Yes was you two and Pete DeFratis uh, from Echo and the Bunnymen. Even though my father, who was uh, a jazz drummer in his youth, he'd sat me down when I was like 10 or 11 with the Gene Krupa uh, drum tuition book um, and, you know, taught me the mama dada, mama dada, all that, or tried to teach me the mama dada. Um, and then, of course, I had an appreciation of uh, Paul Cook, Topper Hedden, 
uh, Dave Ruffy from The Ruts. But then you guys came along in the sort of post-punk um, and the first time I would be aware I was listening to Budgie would be when you joined the Banshees, even though I knew the Slits record that I hadn't put the two things together at the time. And um, so it was Hanging Garden um, and Spellbound and Over the Wall by the Bonnie Men. Th those were the three tracks that I, I was trying to master when I was about like 13 or 14. And I persevered with the drums till I was about 18. And I, I gave it up because A, it's too exhausting drumming in the styles yes. <laughs> that I'd learned from you 2 and Defratus rather than going yeah. with the, uh, learning all the technicalities of Gene Krupa. And it, it was exhausting. And also, I, I wonder if you two ever felt like this, because what Mark and I understand as being guitarists and, and a singer is, if I blow it on stage by missing some lyrics, forgetting some lyrics, forgetting a chord progression, Nobody really cares, you know, you, you can you can fluff your way through it. Uh, bass player's not so good. If the bass player hits a bomb note, that's not good. But if a drummer just gets exhausted and fucking fails, you know, monumentally fails, which when I was in my last drumming days, that I'd be on stage and I would just be thinking the whole way through each song, please let me carry on being able to hold on to these songs and uh, the sticks and finish the song, which is the reason I stopped playing the drums. So I blame you for getting me into playing the drums and I also blame you because the styles I learned from you, that's why I got out as well. <laughs> uh, first of all, to get through the songs, I made my sticks longer. Um, by about two inches to an uh, the average length, it was about 16 or 15 to 16 inches. And mine was 17 to 18 inches, which meant I had two inches more mm. time before I lost the stick. <laughs> <laughs> Ingenious. Very good. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering now. I, I'm, I'm actually going to reminisce for a little moment, if I may. Because, um, okay. Miles, you and I met. Miles, you and I met in, in, in January, I believe, 1992. We were on tour together, right? And, and the thing is, I, I, I had to find out, you know, when the album we were doing was out and what you were up to. And I came across yeah. this thing called Steve, and it's on Live Journal, and he's written a little blog that, but of that night. He dug up his old diary. So if I may, okay. just quote from this chap. It's very funny. But, well, I think it is anyway. It, it could get worse. Um, so, we, yes, Wonder Stuff. Um, I, I said, so Wonder Stuff, Stuff opened for Susie and the Banshees. The show did very well in, times of, in terms of timing. Wonder Stuff actually started their opener a minute or two before the scheduled 8 p.m. starting time. The intermission was a reasonable 50 minutes. <laughs> Wonder Stuff was a nice surprise for me. Overall, they started off just sounding like well-performed generic college rock with muddy mixing that made it sound even less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> One plus was the presence of an electric violin, which had a pretty cool sound to it, and quite a skilled fiddler playing it. In between songs, a lead singer commented briefly, maybe one sentence, about the songs. He had a fairly strong English, I think, accent, but not one I was familiar with. He said, 
fuck at least once in every sentence he spoke. <laughs> <laughs> the light shown surge present were decent, uh, but not incredible. Uh, so I was not initially impressed, but after three or five boring songs, they got going. <laughs> oh, God, and there endeth our career in America. Uh, I'll go down to the end. He says, he introduced the next couple of songs. <laughs> he said, he ended the next, introduced the next couple of songs as, quote, some pop bullshit. <laughs> I'd call them. <laughs> Don't get, I'd call them Don't Get Me Down and Space in My Diary for You, since I don't know the real titles. Okay, I know which one he's on about. Uh, both were popish, but far enough off the mainstream that I wouldn't have called them bullshit pop. I wouldn't mind seeing them again. So you did okay. <laughs> wow. Flying. I was wondering where that was going for a moment. It, it <laughs> like there was going to be fisticuffs later on but after that one. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll come to Susie and the Banshees later. It's even better. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go on, give us part of his Banshees review. Uh, Susie and the Banshees started around 9.25pm. They did a decent length show, finishing around 10.45 after two or three very short encore teaser breaks. <laughs> they had six people on stage with an interesting instrument set. The basic setup was Susie singing, the guitarist, the bassist, a keyboard and two drummers. Two drummers? Do you remember? Two Talvin drummers? Singh. Yeah, Talvin you had Singh was Talvin, with us. percussion, yeah. yeah. So one on a regular drum set um, and one on a more specialised drum set. Sometimes they substituted electric cello for the keyboard or second drum set. They had a few other alternative instruments, blah, blah. Mixing was mo- was off on most of the songs. Voicing guitar were too low. <laughs> mid-range, mid-range drums too loud. Other instruments, bass guitar, keyboards, miscellaneous. High and low drums were mixed about right. I think they performed well, but on most of the songs, the mixing mostly made it hard to tell. Susie looked pretty old. <laughs> oh, Jesus oh, Christ. Oh. That should be... I know. That should be no surprise, as long as they've been around. Some of the others look pretty old, too. <laughs> One guy in the front row had either grey hair or very blonde hair that looked grey because of the lighting. The stage and lighting were set up fairly creatively. They had some wavy streaks in the platforms under the drummers and the keyboardists, which late in the show lit up in colours. And behind them, they had a large mural in an Indian art style of a couple in a passionate state. Um, I think I might was like I, I could stop there. Um, wow! The final song was "Memory Serves You Well." That one was right on. Her voice worked right for her. It was nice that song ringing in our ears as we left was done just right. Steve, where where was that review from? From which city? What do you, do you think you know him? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just making a mental note that we shouldn't go on tour there. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't say where he was. This Steve bloke has to be a budding sound engineer because there's so much focus on the mix and every review. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we were touring in England last last month, we were talking about that show Pistol, you know, the Sex Pistols thing. Right. And uh, it right. just reminded me about you know, one of the episodes, it shows Susie performing a song. What did you see that? And what, what are your opinions on how that was portrayed? You know, I haven't. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, I have. I have. I can give my opinion. Okay. On it. Actually, I really liked it. I really liked the whole thing. I thought he got, um, um, you know, because I know Steve, obviously, yeah. 
and yeah, you know, he lives out here as well, right? Yeah. But um, I was very happy for Steve because I was I was glad that he actually got his book made into something, you know, and I think that's very good. I, I liked it a lot. I mean, you know, there were some things that were a bit Hollywoodized, I suppose, yeah. but but in general, I thought they they got the flavour of it. I mean, you know, I, Malcolm McLaren was spot on. Yeah, that's exactly how I remember Malcolm and uh, the whole the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was good. I thought I thought it was very good. But um, yeah, I, that, that didn't they put like some clips in from the old days as well? Yeah, I think they interspersed some old footage, which made it feel more authentic. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're talking about the one with the Bill Grundy um, episode, right? Well, there was actually an episode where they show Susie, you know, singing. I can't remember what the song was, but I'm guessing, you know, it was an early yeah. inc- incarnation. And uh, I was, I was yeah. like, oh, that's I cool. And, it, that and it made me think of you guys, you know. Was was it with Sid playing drums? I can't, I, I think yeah, I can't been, remember. Right? Yeah, because yeah, it's that bit I think that was Sid the idea. Because stuff. Yeah, right. yeah it was at the Hundred Club. The, the, they uh, rebuilt, or maybe they even filmed it at the Hundred Club because it certainly right. had changed. Um, but yeah, I think that was the idea. It was yeah. when Sid was 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 drumming. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the subject of um, um, of security guys, we had for a very brief period of time, we had a security guy called Nigel who was a Welsh bare knuckle boxer. Um, and basically it was to protect, not to protect us from the audience, but to protect them from each other. <laughs> he was there to stop us beating each other up. <laughs> it was like a, a final tour sort of 93, 94 of that original lineup. So, but um, Mark, did, did have you ever done a tour when there's been a security guy on the t- When you play with Peter Murphy, is there security or? Um, he, he hasn't brought a security... He hasn't brought a security person with with him, Peter Murphy. But um, I know whenever I toured with Tricky in the nineties, you know, he always had these big burly. He had Uncle Tony, who apparently was fucking well dodgy from the the, the Bristol, you know, Noel West estates, right. and you know, it just it it, it was yeah. it was quite interesting, you know. This and Tricky seemed obsessed with gangster yeah, British gangsters and stuff like that. So they'd constantly be right. talking about the stories about this, that and the other, about the <coughs> old gangsters in the East End and stuff like that. So that that yeah. was my main exposure to security guys on a tour, you know. Right. How about you, Lol? You got any security guy guy stories? I was thinking the last time I was on the uh on the road with the cure for the reflections tour, they have a very nice uh security guy, a nice German fellow, Michael. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's, he's like the gentle giant, but you know, people don't, they don't mistake what his presence is there for really. You know, they, they don't look at him and go, Oh, you know, that, that must be, you know, the, the driver or something. No, they, they know. Yeah. I, I, I joined a band I, when I joined the Banshees, I, um, we, we the crew, um, and security, ev- everything was shared with motorhead. Um, so when Motorhead were off the road, we went on the road because, like, the rig had to keep going. You know, the lights, the sound. Uh, it was all early days, so it cost wow. a lot to keep this stuff to pay for it all. So it had to be out all the time. Um, and so when in the gigs, you see, and and they that you had to like appease the crew. And Susie wasn't around, but we had to learn ACDC songs. 
you know, and, and Motorhead songs, of course. So we knew Kill by Death and we knew Ace of Spades. And if nice. we could get like, you know, Bomber down as well. And um, nice. Uh, whatever, what was it called? The, so just keep the crew happy. And then what also happened was like, you come off stage and you had to dodge the, ni dodge the knife, which had the uh, amphetamine on it. Like a huge lump of it, you know. Like, yeah, I've one of them. I've gone to as an encore. <laughs> <laughs> that brings brings to mind the old uh, the old Motorhead story, which is probably not true, but you know, um, they're all true. Like, all true. Well, they're all true, right? <laughs> so, so you know, they're playing their show. Motorhead playing the show, and uh, they come off stage, and uh, Lemmy goes, "I, I, I thought Bomber was really good tonight," and. Uh, <laughs> The other two look at each other and go, didn't play Bomber. <laughs> didn't play Bomber tonight. <laughs> I, I was going to ask Bodgie then, I'd, um, if they were doing like Ace of Spades to appease the crew, did Steve Severin keep the flanger on? I'd like to have heard the flanged version of Ace of Spades. Yeah, the, the goth bass version. <laughs> The flanger was stuck <laughs> yeah. in the on position. <laughs> Flange, reverb, and phase. There was no difference. Actually, you know, Motorhead were, were very nice to us. We, 1979, we played the Reading Festival and Motorhead were on mm -hmm. it. And, you know, the rest of them were throwing bottles of, um, bottles of pee at us, you know, like the, the, the audience. And uh, Motorhead was so nice. So they came up in a big old army truck and Lemmy got out with this huge crate of something and walked into our, our little you know, caravan that they had the backstage then and, and uh, pulled out a bottle of vodka and said, here you go, nice to see you lads. And, you know, he was like welcoming us to the, the whole thing. So it was, you know, it was very nice because we, we were sort of brand new, you know. Yeah. I only ever had nice times with, with, uh, with Lemmy. I was with him in a club in London one night and... About three months prior to us meeting, um, a friend of oh, hers, yeah. let's call her Sarah, uh, a friend of his, let's call her Sarah, she was dating our bass player, who is also sadly departed now. And our bass player had set the room on fire in the Columbia oh, Hotel, oh, yeah. and she took some quite nasty burns on, his, on her legs. And I remember this whole fiasco having happened. And um, yeah. so I was introduced to Lemmy at this nightclub. And he said, the wonder stuff. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, I hear your bass player torched Sarah. Oh, <laughs> it's just the way you put it. So um, the next thing we can get on to is books. You're the author of about three books, right? I've done three. Um, I was diligent enough. I don't know why I was doing them um, at the time, but from about 86 right through to 94, I was keeping handwritten diaries um, about really the progress that the Wonder Stuff was making. And um, probably about nine years ago, I thought, I'm going to start just typing these up and see if they're readable and thought it would make one book. But there was so much of it that I thought was salvageable. It ended up being three different volumes. Um, and I wanted to... It wasn't that I thought they were worth... The story of the Wonder Stuff was worth reading in such a sort of 
close proximity from from the inside it was that i wanted to one day write a book i'm a charles bukowski fan a, a john fante fan and so really it was an exercise for right. me to see if i could um discipline myself to sit down every day and write and it turns out i could and uh, they went over really well and uh, um it was great our friend phil birchall was a uh, designer he uh he whipped me into shape getting all the pictures and ephemera and old tour passes and press things and they they turned out really nice. so they're kind of coffee table books but there's 110 120,000 words in each one um but i'm such a miserable little prick throughout all three books i sort of use the handwritten diary part in italics and then i have to answer it back to try you know from a contemporary point of view to excuse myself at why i was so miserable and it's still a mystery to me now why i didn't really allow myself to uh to it to enjoy the enjoy the ride I, I um yeah i think mostly i did have a good time to do those eight years but um when i when i was left to my own dev devices to write about it all i did was moan <laughs> well you know uh I'm in admiration of you because I, I know exactly how much it takes to write a hundred thousand or a hundred twenty thousand words. That's a, that's a lot Indeed of effort. Do, and that's yeah. a lot of sitting down every day and just churning it out. And uh, I'm doing a, a second book right now, and uh, you know, it's there's three or four or five hours a day just sit sitting your butt down and and writing, and it's uh, it. It's as rewarding to me in lots of ways as music. It just takes a lot longer, you know? Yeah. Uh, when you were writing yours, I, I had, um, like I said, I was doing mine about like eight or nine years ago. What, what was happening to me was as I was writing about a certain period, I was there. I, I was right back in that period as I was writing about it. And to the point where my girlfriend at the time that was living with me, she'd walk in the house at like 6 p.m. And I was surprised it was her. I was expecting it to be my ex-wife. My head was so in what I was writing. So I wonder when you were writing yours, did did you have any negative or positive moments like that where, where you know, you were really in the moment again? Yeah, no, absolutely, all 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 the time. Because uh, the first book, I I realised um, early on, there's no way I could write my book at home, because you know, if you sit at home and you start writing, you you start thinking, oh, okay, time for lunch. Uh, I I better fix that thing. Better do this. Better do that. You know, you get uh, full of things to do. So I rented a little office. And I would go there every day and and write, but there was it was like one of those sort of um, you know combined workspaces. So there was a couple of other guys that worked in there. They were like designers and things, and I'd be writing away, and they'd come around the corner and they'd see me, and tears would be streaming down my face, and they'd oh. go, "You're right, you're right. Is there something wrong?" And it'd be because what I was writing about had brought up the emotion so viscerally that that's not even a word is it they brought up the word you know, emotions so strongly that i just thank you i just reacted you know straight away with, <coughs> without it i go no i'm fine so my question to you is did you find that once you had written those things it was cathartic and it got out a lot of the the bad things you know you you're able to get 
rid of them and lose them you know absolutely yeah well sadly for us our original drummer and original bass player are both dead uh rob died in 93 right. and our original drummer died in uh 2006 and at the point where they both passed away i was in not in a good space with them our relationships were not good and i didn't think well of them uh when they died uh i, I didn't process it very well um it was kind of like well so what and uh, and then when I went back and wrote those books, I the last thing I expected was for me to come away from the experience of writing and go, that was a cathartic experience. But Jesus, it was because now what I have, and it's lasted, I don't think of those two guys, uh, of us being at war anymore. I think of their younger selves, the, the, the kids that we were when we put the band together. And that we had each other's backs, and and we struggled through this thing, and we fought, you know, right. like like dogs to 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 achieve what we wanted to achieve with the band. So, yeah, it really really helped on that front. So if I if I think of Martin or Rob now, I think of them as being lovely young men that were my best mates. Wow, that's that's an absolutely great and uplifting story because it's it's the truth, you know. Um, I, I've changed my mind about a lot of things that went on from writing, you know. Some, some of them, uh, you know, I just needed to explain my life to myself. You know, people ask you, well, why did you write a book? What for? And I said, well, I needed to understand what had happened and, and what I did, you know, because you know this, both of you know this, it's like you, you run so fast at the beginning to try and get things done that you've got no time to to analyze any of your past or look at any of the history and figure out what's going on and doing the book definitely helped me um budgie will be pleased to hear that you've used all your diaries because he's having a look through his diaries right now to write his book ah. yes yes i i just have to keep i have to keep them all locked away you know the they're way too distracting from the actual story I'm trying to tell, I suppose. And and isn't it wonderful to to remember? I remember young guys just cr yeah, crazy yeah. and up for it, you know, and whatever was going on. And we were pretty similar ourselves, although we, you know, the banshees have been at it a little bit longer. It, it, but how it changes as it comes to an end. Um, and I feel the same thing. John McGeoch's death hit me many years later, much later, when I'd finally got my own head out of my right. self-occupied self and, and considered all of the stuff we never had time to think about because we were so blinkered into what we thought was the, yeah, the you know, yeah. our primary purpose <laughs> <laughs> to, to boldly go where no one had gone... Um, we didn't have time to, to care about yeah. anybody falling by yeah. the wayside. Which right. which is a really a, a sad, sad point, you know, because like I, I knew John and he was a lovely man. And if, you know, we'd all had a little less, you know, a little more time rather, not a little less time. If we'd had a little more time or a little more experience mm -hmm. of life, it, you know, we might have been able to help him out a bit. But, you know, that... That wasn't to be. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, it's, uh, hindsight's a good thing, isn't it? You know, it's an easy. Thing. As, as I came back to um, uh, Chikani Morris's interview last night, when he was with uh, in, in Sid Vicious's mm -hmm. band, he said, 
Yeah, she said, told me straight up. I said, I don't want to be alive after 22. Wow. I'm going for it. And wow. that was, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, you know, it, you, can you stop somebody in a, in a way? And it's, we can only do it ourselves, I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. The answer is no, you can't. You can't really. I mean, you know, nobody could have stopped me. I was on, you know, I was on the fast, fast road to, uh, you know, nowhere. But then I got off, you know, at some point. <laughs> I got off the train and started to look and see what's going on. And, and thank God I did, you know. So what's next for you guys? You just come off tour. So what's, what's next? Yeah, so we came off the Wonder Stuff tour, which was uh, UK in June. And it was one of those tours where the promoters talked you into doing an anniversary show of a particular album. So you play the whole album yeah. in full. Um, and then you have 15-minute fag break, in my case. And then you come back and do another hour and a half of, hopefully, favourites that the audience wanted. So the first four dates went nicely. And then Malk, who's the only other original member of the band, um, the guitarist on my left, um, he came down with COVID. So we had to bench him uh, for four shows. And uh, Mark Gemini Thwaite here very, very easily, very cleverly uh, took, because he's got his parts as well, figured out all Malk's parts. Mm. Uh, and we we managed to because the shows had been cancelled, God knows, or postponed, God knows how many times because of COVID. So we were like, we can't, we can't cancel these shows. We can't postpone any more shows. So Mark stepped up like the hero he is and um, got through the whole set. I think we only had to drop two songs, didn't we, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember why, but yeah, yeah, managed to do most of it. But uh, it's uh, it, it was good when he it was good yeah. when Malcolm came back. But you, you were amazing, man. Oh, thank you. So we had the the last two shows. We had Birmingham and London, which are the the, the money gigs. There was, you know, they had to be spot on because uh, those two shows pay for the entire tour, basically. Wow. And uh, he, Malk was back for those, and and they were great. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. And it it it, uh, it felt like a shame at the time, but now my memory is of that was a lovely tour. Uh, but it, it felt horrible at the time having to bench Malk. But um, yeah, like so last year, Mark and I worked on what is my next solo album, which will be out in, I think, October. I'll, I'll release it. We, we want to wait till we've got the vinyl in our hands before we actually give it a release date. We've got the CDs. We promised the vinyl right. by uh, by next month. So uh, And then I'll just go out and do a handful of acoustic shows because I haven't really got... Well, the band that plays on my solo album is the Wonder Stuff minus Erica and uh, and Malk, so it'd be like going out on another sort of stripped down Wonder Stuff tour. But um, I uh, I'm also looking at it as being my my last record. Really, I, I've got to that point now where you remember when you used to make a record and and somebody would buy it and you'd make actual money out of all that work that you did. <laughs> well, those days are well and truly gone. And uh, I'm definitely from that time, so I, I am now of the opinion that I can't be fucking asked to make another record to give it away for free. So this will be my my last one. Uh, Mark here and Erica 
uh, at the Wonderstuff's violinist uh, trying to twist my arm to make the 10th Wonderstuff album. And I'm like, go ahead. If you, if you can come up with a bunch of instrumentals that I can find vocal melodies and lyrics for, but I ain't sitting down and starting this party. <laughs> No, I I was on. I was just trying to about to ask the question. You know, the, the importance of you know, just sitting down and, and making the album, uh, making and, and saying the importance of the vinyl. I'm sitting so like all my vinyl collection is where I am here, and I've got a deck and I'm playing. I've got two Wire albums there. I've got Iggy Pop's mm-hmm. Idiots. I've got some brilliant reggae chart busters from like you know. Just and I'm listening to all the production and I'm listening to the right. sequencing of the album again and I don't mind if it jumps because I played it too bad. You know. yeah. But it, so it's it's yeah. still big in your thinking when you start a new project, you know. Absolutely. How does it sit with you? You because Lola and I are sitting with a bunch of tracks and music. And our producers going, let's get it out there, and we're trying, to, you know, and we're trying to find the right way of putting it all together. It's very important to us. Um, I think, I think the reason, yeah. I think the reason we all we all play an instrument is is um, obviously it's to play live is one thing, but yeah, we're all we're, we're probably always thinking from an early stage to write our own material that we play live, you know, and so. When you take away the prospect right. of writing new material and your purpose is to go out and play live, but you've got to play old songs, I think that's why it seems weird to us because we associate yeah. the whole going out on the road and it, with releasing a record, whether it's a single or an EP or an album. So it's kind of a peculiar yeah. thing for uh, certainly older artists like us to go out on tour and all we're doing is playing old stuff all the time you know you want to play some new stuff it makes you feel yeah. relevant and and the mm-hmm. the act of songwriting is is part of why i even play a guitar is that i like coming up with riffs and bits and bobs and you know that's all part of it and it's become such a peculiar mm-hmm. time in music where you can't make any money from that anymore it seems it's really peculiar mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i was just going to close up on the um Hold on a second. <laughs> all, all kinds of ph- ph- phones going off everywhere. Mom, mom, I can't talk right now. <laughs> I, no, it's Kate Bush on the line. Um, Kate Bush. <laughs> oh, bloody Kate Bush again. <laughs> no, I had a, I, I had an interview with her today, and she was, you know, so they're saying thirty-seven years after running up that hill was released, uh, now it's the, you know, you're the oldest person to have a number one record, and it's the first big hit in America, apparently. And um, she's just like lovely. Just I thought, you know, we all scoffed at the time. Kate never went on the road. She just made albums. Just made albums. And <laughs> yeah, great yeah. albums she made. Although we couldn't see it at the time because we were in direct competition, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's just like, so, Kate, what are you doing now? She says, well, I love gardening. You know, right. I thought she's got it made. Yeah. Gardening. I read. I read somewhere that she's made like two and a half million dollars just, yeah, since running up that hill has blown back up. Like, and that's not set, not setting foot out of her door, and that's including wow. streaming income and all that. <laughs> like, evidently, you can still make money from music. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows what's the next track that's going to be on Stranger Things? Oh, it was Spellbound, wasn't it? So, it's on the end of it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I did. I saw oh. Severin was writing about that on social media, yeah. Budgie, budgie's going to be minted. All round of budgies. <laughs> <laughs> Drink, drinks are on budgie. Apparently not. <laughs> Your streams go up a little bit. Yeah. We'll have to wait till they press the vinyl edition, yeah. I suppose, of the soundtrack uh, to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been lovely chatting, lovely, lovely meeting you again, and yes, you know, having the conversation we never had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, no, it's just, that's the best part about this. Definitely, yeah. Look forward to seeing you both at some point on the on the road of happy destiny. That's right, mate, yes. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.